Welcome to Subcutaneous, a beneath-the-skin look at medicine with myself, Dr. Goddard. And me, a physician only in New Jersey, David. (laughs) (laughs) Today, uh, we are welcoming Dr. Ingrid Wayugi. Ingrid was my co-resident in dermatology, Melinda, and she is a practice dermatologist, certified dermatologist in Sacramento, California. We're so excited to have her. I haven't uh, see Ingrid in a while because yeah, thanks for having all me. those things. So yeah, we're super excited. Um, I really good good episode. Lots to dive into with Ingrid. So it sounds thanks. like you know, kind of in your current place in life, you you work for kind of an interesting group or practice that's kind of physician oriented. Or yes, I work for a multi specialty group. Um, it's about 170 physicians. And we're contracted to help staff the clinics and the hospital. And I work mostly in outpatient setting. Um, I've been there since I graduated from residency and did my two years of, you know, probationary. And then they voted us into shareholder. So this is, I'm coming up on my third year. And I just, I can't believe three years has gone by already. Yeah, that's so so amazing too that you found like a good spot right out of residency. I don't think everyone is that lucky. So. I did a lot of like soul searching because yeah. I knew it wasn't just my decision. It was like I had a, my poor husband has been mo- moved around the country for my career. So I tried to really analyze it and try to make the best decision with the information I had mm-hmm. for the both of us. And I felt like even though it was extremely painful, I mean, you remember when I was a fourth year or trying to make these decisions, yeah. but I think it paid off in the end to, to really delve in and um, introspect. So. And you guys overall, I'm pretty happy. Yeah. And you picked a city. You're in Sacramento. Most of your family members in California are in Loma Linda. Yeah. I have no ties to Sacramento. None whatsoever. No family, no friends. I didn't grow up here. Um, So it was really just off of a post that I read. It sounded good. Um, And I met the derm dermatologist here, had a good vibe interviewed also had a good vibe with the physicians that came out to meet me and just the setting is more it's definitely much more rural I work 30 minutes out of Sacramento mm-hmm. a lot of my patients are farmers yeah um, yeah so I thought it was a good fit and I just felt like I will spend most of my life working and I wanted to be in a place where I felt like it was family yeah and I didn't want to be part of a mill or this money generating machine type of environment mm-hmm. and so I felt it was worth the move yeah. to uh, go up to Sacramento, even though I have no ties. Yeah. And you're a quick flight away from yes. kind of family, which is nice. Yeah. So you mentioned that uh, you became a shareholder in it. Is this like a physician owned kind of share company? Everybody's a mm-hmm. shareholder after a couple of years and so yes. you all kind of you vote two- on the issues or? Yes. Yes. So you have like two years where you're guaranteed salary, which was nice coming out of residency. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have like two years to build up your patient base. And then after two years, the rest of the group like votes to see if they want to admit you basically to their club. And um, then you have stake in like the decisions that they make if uh, for policies and, and just like how to navigate things within the physician group. And then if there's any like profits, you get to take share of that. If there's any losses, you also help bear the brunt of that. So it definitely is a partnership. And I, I think it breeds a lot of collegiality. Um, so I, I run in a clinic with all the pretty much all, all the specialties are within house or within like a walk of like 
one block down. So if I have a question about rheumatology, I can just run down the hall, ask my rheumatologist colleagues, vice versa, urgent care, pediatrics will just pop on by to germ, say, hey, I've got this thing. So I think overall, it's just been a nice fit because I like that type of um, teamwork that you can just ask people and they're willing to help you. Yeah, that's super nice. That's kind of something I feel like you have a little bit in residence. And then a lot mm-hmm. of us that go out into private practice like myself, go especially with Derm, go into something that's like so isolated and you're not connected with those people anymore. And, you know, um, so it sounds like a really awesome kind of setup there that's not academia, but still has some of the really good qualities of academia. Yeah. Is this, is this, I haven't heard of this kind of system before. Is this kind of common or is, is it? Okay. I would say less so with dermatology. I don't mm-hmm. know, Ingrid, you can chime in on that, but um, there are big multi-specialties around. Okay. So this, this is the way those multi, I've, you know, I've heard of multi-specialty groups, but this is the way they're kind of set up. Is that, that's yes. how they're commonly done. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And this is a pretty small one. There's o- other ones that are much larger mm-hmm. and I like the smaller aspect because in order to make decisions, it doesn't have to go through like 10 billion committees. And yeah. versus like an HMO, I felt like when I interviewed with some larger HMO companies, they pay better, there's better benefits, mm-hmm. but you can just sense even from the interview that it was not a mobile mm-hmm. um, kind of system that you were one person seeing the max that could be. Whereas yeah. like for me, now that I'm shareholder, I determine my schedule. Yeah. You know, I can decide if I want to see 25, 30, whatever I want to do. And no one is pressuring me either way. Right. Which is really nice. And you're probably like a eat what you kill type of model, too. Like, you're yes. just getting a percentage now that you're off the like base model. Right. And so that gives you the flexibility, too, of like, okay, yes. if I want to take a week off, I do. I just realize I'm mm-hmm. not going to make money for that week, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Which I think that model is pretty common regardless of like what you go into, unless you're in like academia, but even still in academia, there's like a RV. Of yeah. Payment. And I'm RVU. Oh, I'm you RVU are. Okay. Based. Okay. Interesting. And it's nice because you have the RVU, which you kind of like you say, eat what you kill, but you also have the um, benefits of like contributions of your employer to your 401k. Yeah. Good benefits. So it's not as, um, so it's kind of a nice blend between the yeah. security of like the large HMO groups and then private practice. Yeah. Where private practice, you don't get some of those perks. You make more Potentially, but you got to fund your own retirement right. plans, et cetera. So, yeah, yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, we're uh, glad you, I'm glad that you found such an awesome spot. Thank and you. That you guys have been thank able you. to kind of like um, build something in Sacramento, like got a house, and Devin Ingrid's husband is a dentist and kind of opened his own practice, which has been fun to follow along with them on that the adventures of Ingrid yep. and Devin Ingrid he's helping working out sometimes. on it now <laughs> is that's what he's doing while you're it on this never ending <laughs> yeah I bet it's proven anything to me I don't want to ever own a dorm practice wow ever ever, ever. yeah so that would be so hard too if like he had his own dentist practice and you had your own dorm practice like yeah. you guys would probably never would no. always be working yeah that's right yeah yeah oh well we can dive into you and I can dive into that more later off, <laughs> off, off uh, um yeah off the air. Uh, but okay, well, let's kind of go all the way back to your childhood because okay. you were not like a straight shot path to derm. It wasn't like, oh, I want to be a dermatologist when you were a kid. Uh, no. So what did you want to be growing up? What was your childhood like? Kind of take us back to little Ingrid. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I was very naughty, but um, <laughs> so it's kind of a funny story. I remember when I, one of my earlier memories is when I was like four years old, my parents had for some reason, these like dermatology atlases. I don't know where they got them from, from a yard sale or whatnot. My parents were immigrants. I came to the United States from Indonesia on my first birthday. And um, I remember as a kid, like for fun, like grossing myself out, looking at skin problems oh wow and i would just like look through the picture like oh that is so gross and i just i hated skin even in med school i never rotated on derm i just like this is disgusting so no i did not ever <laughs> want to be a dermatologist growing up which is very like atypical um i i didn't know what i wanted to be i knew i didn't really want to be a doctor because that's in my culture that's kind of cliche i'm asian american and i'm very um right. I have kind of independent streak to me. And so I found like what I wanted to do in college. And, and that was to be a teacher. I, I was a, uh, I went to Taiwan for a year when I was 19. And I taught English as a second language to kids, to adults. I just really found my calling. So when I came back to the United States, I decided to go to state school and become a public school teacher. Um, and I, I did that for a couple of years, really loved it. I got my master's in it, my teaching credential, taught at a Title I school with some really awesome people in a very um, kind of underfunded area in yeah. Rialto, California. And I, I loved it. There's a lot of struggles, but that is that was my, my calling. What did you teach? I taught first grade okay. for three years. And I taught fourth grade for about a year and a half. And then this was during the time in the early 2000s when California was doing budget cuts all the time. So every end of the year they would pink slip or lay off the newer hires so they didn't have to like raise your pay mm -hmm. huh. and so i got tired of it because i got pink slipped every single year and then i switched um to a parochial school and i taught like a multi multi-grade from first grade to eighth grade okay. three days a week oh wow so i changed like different settings to make sure that i wasn't leaving teaching um on a whim or without like careful yeah. due diligence, mm -hmm. not just like I'm just jumping ship for greener pastures. So I try to explore different grade levels, different school settings before um, I change ship, basically. What was that parochial school experience like? Because I imagine that was very different than your public school sort of experience. And... Yeah, it was very different. Parents are a lot more involved. You know, I mm -hmm. taught it in a school where kids most of them got free or reduced meals and they wouldn't be dropped off in time to eat breakfast. And so you can try to imagine trying to teach yeah. 20 kids that are hungry. And I remember I had a friend who lived with me at the time and she worked at a bakery and she would bring home like day old bread and I would bring them to the classroom and I would ask the kids like, how many of you had breakfast? And very few hands went up and they all wanted the bread. And it just breaks your heart, you know, and, and I remember like taking all the kids to lunch and like trying to teach them how to choose like their meals and not just to get the chips, but to get the salad and because they weren't taught that, you know, like as, as much as you would think. And you go to a parochial school setting where parents are a lot more invested and they have the funds and the means to invest in their children in the way they want. Not that saying that public school parents don't, they just are strapped, like they have other mm -hmm. issues that are um kind of constraining them and it's just it's very sad it was very difficult for me to see that discrepancy because all parents want you know most parents want what's best for their children and sometimes limited by their socioeconomic status or their jobs or immigration mm -hmm. status or whatnot it really limits them and it really has a profound effect on the trajectory of 
children's lives. Yeah. So. So what was kind of the, well, I do know that you did other things while you were a teacher too. You got into photography. Um, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And had a photog- your own photography business as well. Um, was yeah. that kind of a hobby turned career or was that something that you needed to do? Because I know as a public school teacher, you're probably not making very much money. Um, how um, did that kind of come about in your life too? <laughs> so I've always loved the camera, like taking pictures, not me in front of the camera, me taking pictures since mm-hmm. I was a kid. I had a camera since I was like 10 years old. And when I went to college, there was a photography like program. So I minored in photography. And at that time, I was planning my own wedding. And I just saw how difficult it was to find a photographer that I liked. Everything was very staged and Mm -hmm. formal. And I liked more of like the photojournalistic style and Mm -hmm. capturing moments that were spontaneous. So I decided to ask to shadow somebody. So on the weekends, like I would go carry bags and assist and basically learn the more like on the job training for photography. Whereas in during the week, I would go to school and then learn like the portrait side Mm -hmm. of photography, the developing the dark room you know, the composition, all that stuff. And so when I graduated, I just continued shadowing. And then I thought, you know, I could probably do this on my own so that my husband supported me. Like he helped assist me on the weekend. We opened our own corporation and we put one ad in a paper, a local paper. And that was the only advertising we ever did. And we did that business for eight years Oh wow! for fun. Basically, yeah. we didn't really need the money. Like I thought teaching was fine for the needs yeah. that we had. And it took up our weekends and I would teach all day and I would edit photos. I'd create albums from scratch before like all these templates, you know, now it's easy because all these programs, uh-huh. software helps you design everything. Back then I did it manually. I would in Photoshop manually edit, brighten teeth, yeah. fix stray hair, oh put them all together in a collage and create these albums, drive them to the lab in Rancho, driving to the album company in Rancho in um, Orange County. So my days were, and my weekends were full. I did that for like six years while concurrently while I taught. Yeah. So, so yeah. you finished undergrad. You, I, how am I not surprised by all of this too, Ingrid? You're like super woman, like do it all. <laughs> um, then you're teaching and doing your photography business. Mm-hmm. Where in this period are you like, you're obviously super busy, um, kind of your full day, you're, days are full what's the kind of decision point what how did you decide oh I don't want to do this anymore (laughs) I want to go back to school and be a doctor um so I started I I love my first couple years of teaching um but you know when you get when you constantly get blamed for things are out of your control like why is the fourth grader not reading at a fourth grade level when parents don't show up to open house no one turns in their homework packets it beats down on you. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I, I got my master's in education thinking maybe I want to do admin, but I, I, de- I didn't want to do admin. Um, and so I thought like, this is, I can't do this for 30 years, even mm-hmm. though I love teaching. This is just not for me. So maybe I need to go up to like higher education. Um, so I thought about medicine because I had a lot of friends who were physicians. I actually like started my prereqs. My first class was like in, in the sciences was in 2005, I believe. I took like an accelerated OCHEM class over eight weeks in the summer oh where you take all of OCHEM like in that time. And I hadn't even taken GCHEM yet. And I had no science back and I was liberal studies. Mm. And um, I was gonna apply to medical school. I started my application because I thought, well, maybe I can teach in a, medic- in, in a medical sk- school setting or teach at like higher levels of education with an MD. 
But I actually had, funny enough, I had several clients who were physicians, my photography clients, mm -hmm. and I told them what I was doing. And two of them sat me down and was like, look, if you can do anything besides medicine, don't do medicine. Like rethink <laughs> yeah. it, just rethink it, girl. And like, we're not saying this out of, and we just, cause all, we know our experience. We know what medicine is like, uh -huh. like before you switch gears, try something different, like go to a different grade level, go to, so that's what I did. I followed their okay. advice because I, I, I do try to, you know, when people offer advice to me, I really try to take it to heart because I know they're not doing it out of a malicious, from a yeah. malicious place. They, they're doing it out of good intent. And so I changed grade levels. I dropped out of my prereqs. I went back to teaching at a different grade level. I switched to parochial school to see if that would mm -hmm. fix, you know, my discontent. And I just felt like I didn't have longevity still. Mm -hmm. And so the turning point for me was um, my husband was a second year dent student at the time. He volunteered to go on a mission trip with a dental school to Bangladesh in 2009. They needed somebody help run the children's program because they were doing like a free medical clinic and a free dental clinic and a free children's program out like in the jungles of Bangladesh, like four or five hours out of their capital. Mm -hmm. And they recruited me because like, hey, you're a teacher. You can help with the children's program. So I had nothing going on. So I came along. And so I did. I helped with the children's programs. But then like I would help out in the clinics and I found myself like in their like makeshift OR where they had like old towels and sheets draped up for surgical drapes, like uh, camping lights, headlights mm -hmm. for like surgical instrument, you know, just surgeries. And they were taking out lipomas and things that they could in the setting. And I was like, wow, that's pretty badass. Like I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so basically that trip changed my perspective. I said, you know what, I'm going to go for it. I think I've already tried all these things. If I got a medical degree, I could learn a whole new skill set that I don't currently have that would help people. And I could also teach if I wanted to. Like it would give me admin options, teaching options, and clinical like skills I have no clue on how to do. And so at that point, I came home and I decided I was miraculously released out of my teaching contract. Uh, that was in September of 2009. And my goal was to make it into med school by 2010. And at this point, I'd only completed like my full OCHEM. Um, I hadn't taken an MCAT. I had taken one quarter of bio, one quarter of physics. And I had not even taken GCHEM yet. And so I decided to like purchase the Princeton Hyper Review on eBay. <laughs> and I basically set a program for myself to study on my own all the classes I hadn't taken yet. So I could take the last MCAT possible for that admission cycle that ended like in February. So between like September of 2009 to January of 2010, I would work and then come home and just like basically teach myself the rest of physics, bio and chemistry and just take practice exam after practice exam. And I would just fail them. Even up to December, I was like failing, like not passing really? the 30. At that point, it was the MCAT, like the 30 was like, you got to pass the right. 30. Yeah, yeah. And I was like getting 25 and 24. And I was just like, you know what? I've been in harder places than this. You just have to like go through and just have tenacity. And I, I did. And so I got my 30. I didn't blast the MCAT out of the water, but I did get my 30 that I needed. And then in January, I finished, I, I enrolled in the rest of school and I finished physics, hmm. GCAM, 
biology and I got accepted into med school in April. So in August, in less than a year, I had done all my, wow. most of my prereqs. Yeah, and, you're a uh, monster. <laughs> <laughs> a no, good monster. I, I, yeah. because, I, I should because a lot of us have this like misconception that it's like your brain power <clears throat> that matters that you're born with. And I, I honestly, I don't believe that. I yeah. feel like a lot, there's a baseline, right? But really it's just like your determination and like, mm-hmm the dedication to do what you set out to do. And Mm -hmm. I'm not like skilled in the sciences, like the arts are way more easy for me. But like, if you set your mind to do it, and you're committed, and you stick to a schedule, that can overcome like a lot of one's inherent deficiencies. And I feel that's like, and when I went to med school, there are people like that had majored in biology, and you know, did all these things and I had none of that. But I remember like those hard experiences that I tried to get into med school and that gave me the fortitude to go through med school, to go against mm-hmm. people, you know, in medicine, everyone's looking at each other. Everyone knows so much more, but you know what? Like I have my own way of studying. It doesn't matter if that person has that background. Like all I can do is what I know I can do in my skill set, And, yeah. and I'm all about that. Even as a teacher, like it's what you do with what you have. It's not necessarily your brains. It's your, yeah. your dedication. So I'm a huge believer in that. Well, and I think your years, like your wisdom years going into med school probably helped you tremendously too, you know, you were wise enough to know too, like, okay, I know if I do this and I don't care what Joe Schmo does because I know what I do works, you know, Um, because I think that's, that's about all I went through and a lot of people go through. I remember studying for step one, people would say, put your blinders on, don't worry about how other people are doing it or, you know, what books they're using you set your own plan and do it i remember people telling me that all the time yes yeah easier said than done right oh yeah (laughs) because we're all type a we're all like there's different degrees of type a but to do medicine you have to be in some degree of type a yeah yeah and competitive at some nature right Mm -hmm. and you at least for me you're your worst own enemy Mm -hmm. oh yeah (laughs) and i remember and i share this as a med student i remember because I, I know the only way I can accomplish tasks, I'm not a last minute person, I have to schedule things and do a little every single day. And whatever will take a really smart person like two times, I need like six times, 10 times. That's just the way I am. And you can I can sit there and fight it and be like, it's not fair. Or you mm-hmm. just have to suck it up and be like, that's the way I am. So I have to accommodate that. Mm-hmm. And like, my second year, like I knew, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but like I wanted to do this one specialty and I knew I had to break like a 240 for step one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I started studying six months ahead of time, like two hours every single night. Spring break came along. My good friend who is now a plastic surgeon, brilliant girl. She always was, always will be. Didn't study diddly squat, like nothing. <laughs> we took a practice exam over spring break. I had been studying four months by that time, several hours a night. She beat me by like a yeah. lot <laughs> on the practice step one. And I came home and it was the only time I ever cried in medical school because I'm like, huh. I, what is wrong with me that I study so hard and someone just can just walk yeah. into an exam and like, it's not fair. Mm-hmm. And so you have your own pity party and you're like, just suck it up. Like Mm. it is what it is. And just keep going. You've been in this place before where like you were failing your MCAT one month going into your MCAT and you take those trials and you fuel and use it as fuel to go forward. So yeah. Well, and I'd say you're probably one of the hardest working people. I mean, I think 
anybody listening to this who's heard kind of even just this bit of your story, which I didn't know you during this time, um, I knew you after this. I just think you're one of the hardest working and, you know, kind of dedicated people. And that's hard. It's easier said than done. And you can say, okay, I'm going to be that hardworking person, that dedicated person. It's easier said than done. So I very <laughs> Thank much you. admire right. you for that. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I do think med school is hard in that sense too. It's like, okay, now you get into med school and you meet these people who legitimately, I think we've all, all of us who have been in med school have met them. Like they're just so incredibly they're, intelligent. They're brilliant. You don't have to be that hard worker. But I like your point of that, like, you don't have to be that person. Um, you, you just don't. have to be willing to, you know, work hard and have determination. But I think it's really hard. I agree with you to not because my best friend in med school too is way smarter than I was. She worked really hard too, but also was much smarter than at baseline than me. And it's hard because you know, really comparison hard. is built into us as much as we try and fight it. So, um, yeah, I think those are all really good. Good comment. And it's like knowing like how knowing like what strengths you do have. Because you know, in med school, it's always like, oh well, he's mm-hmm. studying that way. Maybe I should switch that way. Mm-hmm. And then you talk to somebody else, like, oh, you study that way. I'm gonna switch that way, right? Without having that, I think the teaching side really helped me because yeah. I learned about like learning methods and things like that. And just having that um sense of like, oh, that won't work for me. Like I know I don't learn that way. Right. It doesn't matter if everyone is acing exams that way. I need to do it this way. And I remember when I first started med school, somebody in leadership who knew me from before, I won't you know, mention any details, mm-hmm. they straight up told me because I was like the second oldest person in my med school class. I started med school at 30 and everyone was coming out like mm-hmm. 22. And they told me flat out, you're going to have a really hard time because now it's going to the digital age and you're like a paper book kind of person. Like you're just going to have a hard time. Like that's what someone told me. I think they're trying to be mm-hmm. helpful. Yeah. But like, I knew that I was coming in at a disadvantage and, um, I don't know. I, I just, you gotta, you gotta know like what works for you (laughs) and screw everything else. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And even before we started recording, Ingrid's like, you know, I'm not an auditory person. So I think too, just kind (laughs) of like, yeah, knowing that, cause I felt like I just tried to do it all, like do the auditory, do the, um, kinesthetic, like writing it down and, I don't know if I ever truly learned the best way that I learned, which was a huge struggle for me, especially going into residence. Um, it's once hard. Once you have less time to learn the things they need to learn. I think what's kind of, it's kind of funny, like, oh, I think what really helped me was being a pretty good self-critic. Like at the end of every day, even in med school, in residency, at the, as, as I drive home or have some weird dull, like lull, I always reflect of like what I did well today or what I could do better the next mm. day. That's just, mm. I've always, I think my dad was a very critical person and he kind of like instilled that in me. Like he would never like outright, he's never given me a compliment my whole life. It was always like, this is what mm. you could have done better. And so like, whether it be a positive or negative, we could debate that for days, but I'll take it as a positive because that's what I learned mm-hmm. to take from that every day when I would study like, okay, I tried a slightly different technique. I budgeted my time a little bit differently. Did it work? Did it not work? So mm-hmm. every day I was constantly making like slight adjustments to my study method, whether it be I started adding in more mnemonics, I uh, did a little more review time, I whatever it be to try to advance and get better every single day. And even now in clinical practice, when I drive home, I have a 30 minute commute. I think about like my patient interactions, like what could I have done mm-hmm. better? Like it didn't go well. Like, did I miss like something in their body language? Mm-hmm. Could I have explained his skin cancer better? Could I have closed that site a little bit yeah. better? And it, 
that's that's always like been kind of my like mentality to be pretty critical of myself and not um, kind of gloss over my shortcomings, I guess you could say, yeah. you know. So. I think that's a great point for med students too to kind of, especially before your hardcore studying for step one, but maybe during your first year, try new t- new ideas and ways to learn and see if they work for you. Give them a shot, and then decide. Okay, does this work for me or does this not? I mean, if you could start doing that even in undergrad, that's absolutely more helpful. And then if you can study well, because that was a big thing too. These people who had always been super smart and never had to study in undergrad really struggled in med school. Um, myself included because they needed to study or like at some point in your med medical career unless you're just like a genius like your best friend um from med school like at some point you're gonna you're gonna have to study yeah you're gonna have to study there are definitely people who (laughs) don't have to study but and they're just incredibly smart like your friend but I think she may have had to start studying in residency and then you're harder because you're working all these hours you have less time so you're the earlier right. in your yeah, and you career, have no you, you have no developed out. study habits or right. patterns, and so you can it's right. it's definitely harder. Like if you can do the earlier, I think one of the keys to success, and as a teacher, maybe you can speak to this, is if you can instill good study habits in children. Yeah, like that is a mm-hmm. huge determining factor in how successful they can be versus you know, and it's, yes. it's the hardest to do, I'm sure, in children who are smart and don't need to study very hard for sure. Yeah, and that's the whole point of like differentiate differentiated teaching is to like take meet the kids where they're at and push them like one step further this regardless, is like what you could yeah. do but regardless right and like that's exactly what happened like in medical school like at that point I all I did was the same method I would read it six times and I would memorize it when you get to med school you don't get to see it six times yeah <laughs> you know it's like I, I can't like I remember my first day of anatomy first class med school eight o'clock a.m. anatomy like 80 slides insertion points muscles innervation blood supply and I was like holy crap next lecture and I was like what you have to like memorize this all by tomorrow there's like another set of slides coming yeah. tomorrow just in that one topic and so I had to like scramble I'm like okay what did I learn from teaching oh there's like mnemonics I never use mnemonics in my entire life and I that's and I just tried it out, and that's what carried me through like second year, huh. like with the heavy memorization of pharmacology, microbiology, etc. Just like just trying out things really quick in a small amount and testing it. Yeah. And I will say this, like to med students who are listening, what really helped me is like the recall. Like you can study all day, but if you don't practice, mm-hmm. like pulling it out of your brain, that's not like mm-hmm. you need to practice that. And so like, I found a really good group of friends. Uh, one of them is actually a dermatologist today. Her name is Aubrey. Um, oh, yeah. We started studying from like first part of med school. Like we would all study independently. We go to class from eight to 12 and then we'd study independently from 12. I would study, but from like, oh, I get up early and study preview and study. And then I'd go to class from eight to 12, then study hardcore by myself, like from eight, 12 to five. And then I'd work out on the elliptical and review like old stuff that's easy so I could like exercise and like circulate old things again in my head go home have dinner who with my husband was in dent school and then at the time and then in the evening from like seven to ten we would go and meet up and just like quiz each other Uh old material practice recalling forming questions and that really helped me and I never used to be a group studier so like you change to your point you have to change your methodologies based on what is required different classes, different subjects, et cetera. So yeah. Yeah. I became a group studier in med school too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Um, okay. So great. I mean, this is like 
perfect for you as the teacher and the person who's been through schooling. Um, but okay, you're in med school now. Did you? So was your experience in Bangladesh what made you want to be a surgeon when you were in med school? And then yeah. how did you determine? Because Ingrid originally was a urology matched into urology. Um, how how did you decide that you wanted to be a urologist? Was that your first thing you wanted to be, or? Oh yeah, I knew first thing going in med school. Okay, I, I love urology. It's like you know they tell you like it's your people. Like I feel like that's a thing. So I like I like the procedures. I like the patient population. Um, I like the subject matter. It's kind of interesting. Um, I like there's a lot of continuity care. So first year med school student, I knew I wanted to do urology. Um, How would you know before even going into med school? I did a lot of research on specialties, okay. and um, I, I took a lot of personality tests. Um, and you're right. That's, it's a big gamble. Like I read a lot of, especially like, nope, nope, nope. That's not me. Those are not my strengths. Urology, like just seemed like a good fit. I did shadow them at the end of first year and I actually got like a scholarship to do research, uh, with them between my first year and my second year, which I did. And it just confirmed, like I was my first urology day of shadowing. I was with the chair of urology. They were doing a panectomy for penile cancer. And he was just making fun of like med students who would faint. And I'm not a fainter, whatever. I um, I passed out. <laughs> I passed out. I went in there with the cleaver and cut you off. hit the floor, huh? Uh, yeah. And I had to like sit back. It was so mortifying. All the residents like, like all heard about it. But what's great about urology, they're all, they love to laugh. They're jokesters. And I just, I'm that way too. Um, so that's, that's how I chose urology. And I was urology all the way to... I changed. I, I was not. <laughs> so. Right. And urology is a very competitive specialty. I would yes. say probably uh, along the same lines as dermatology, pretty, you know, up there with orthopedic surgery and, you know, ophthalmology, dermatology, all of those. Um, at least when we were going through it, you know, these yeah. kind of tend to change as the years go by. Um, so you knew you had to, that's how you knew you had to make a good score on step yeah. one kind of from the yeah. get go. Um, what was that? Like we can fast forward through kind of med school a little bit and what was the match process like and how did that go? It was hard. You? I mean, you you obviously did very well on step one. You tried really hard. You said you made the score that you needed to to be competitive I did okay. for urology. I yeah. mean, it was, yeah, it was okay. It wasn't fantastic. Yeah. There's people better. To, and I, I don't mind being honest about it. I got a 242, which was not blowing it out of the water, but it like it passed like the cutoff yeah. point. Okay? Yeah. So, um. I had to do a lot of, I did a lot of away rotations and, and it's very urology rotate and the surgical away rotations are very different than derm rotations. Like when I was resident, I saw derm rotators come through. They basically like observed and maybe helped mm -hmm. out a little bit in, in surgery. Like you're, you're there like early and you're in cases they're pimping you. You like, it, it's, it's a beast. I did that for three mm -hmm. months. To try, it's like a tryout, yep. you know, and they just mm -hmm. to see if you're a good fit for that program because like it's such a big lifestyle commitment. So yeah, I did research with them on my off time, my summers. Every time I had spare time, I would if I got out of class early, I knew like where the ORs were. I drive there, observe cases, mm -hmm. rotated on urology every time I could, and then I did three away rotations back to back my fourth year. And it's an early match. Right. So, yeah. um, it's, yeah. it's outside and I actually of the matched, traditional match for mm -hmm. people who are we listening. We matched in just now in January of 2014. So, uh, or 13. Yeah. What do you, what do you mean by early match? I mean, why is it, why is it urology has an early match? 
I actually don't know. Optim at least when I was going through ophthalmology mm -hmm. was early match and neurology was early match. So um They're part of a different matching system. Mm -hmm. So there's the San Francisco match and the I think it's NRMP match. Um yeah. and almost everything except urology and ophthalmology are match in March. And these two specialties match early. <laughs> and I like I agree with you, like, do we know why? No. And then lots of fellowships use FSF match. So like we, I use that matching system for Mohs, um, and cosmetic dermatology uses the same matching system. It's like a the program I use. I don't know. So I have no idea why those two match early, but hmm. just yeah. they think they need more time, or I don't know. Is it a, like a TY year thing, or well, and then you'd probably have to like for ophthalmology because my best friend in med school uh, is an ophthalmologist. And she matched into ophthalmology, and I don't think she knew what her intern year was going to be until NRMP match. So oh, she had to do you're... two separate matches. Uh, Whereas urology, your intern years are it's bundled. In. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, it's very weird. Huh. It's weird. Yeah. Which uh, medical school did you go to? I went to Loma Linda Medical School. Okay. And then you stayed on there for your – oh, no, you went somewhere else for your, your – I went to Texas. Okay. Yeah. I went to, which it was fun. I mean, it was a good experience. I went to Texas, UT Southwestern in Dallas, my first time going to Dallas. Um, I didn't rotate there, which is, I think, unusual. Most people who match there rotate there. And I remember, like, when I came to interview, like, being super intimidated. Everyone was, like, from some pre prestigious school or, I know, like, did all this. They, they knew everybody there. And I was like, I didn't know anybody. And uh, I was surprised. That's where I matched. So it, it's a really good program. Yeah. Very, they're known just for surgical skills across the board, like mm -hmm. gen surge, any specialty. They're they're really good. So I was very honored and just like humbled to be able to even go to that program. It was a, it was a big deal for me. So yeah, for sure. I think anybody in the medical world knows that name. UT Southwestern is just a big powerhouse for med school and residents even beyond so, yeah yeah it's hardcore they're just yeah. like hardcore yeah, from day yeah. one you're just in there i i remember as an intern seeing things there that when i was at loma linda watching people further along in training like still struggling with mm -hmm. because they get you in there so quickly they just throw you in and, and uh yeah I, I would find out soon enough what that means <laughs> so so what was this process kind of like with your husband in dental school at the same time? Had he finished at this point or are you guys um, looking at spending time apart? He was finished. He finished my second year of med school. Okay. He was just working, piecemealing a schedule, you know, mm -hmm. one, one practice here, driving an hour just for that while I was finishing med school. So it was like hard. I mean, dental locums almost. Or? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much working for like nothing, you know, because you're just a new grad and it was damn hard, you yeah. know, like that. there's no, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's hard as hell. You, you just, we overlapped in training and we we're always busy studying and we didn't have like a great income for years. Yeah. <laughs> so it was hard, but, um, you know. We made it through. So, and was Devin a little bit of an older dent student when he was in dental school too? So you guys were both uh, kind of like non-traditional. Yeah, he was a little bit older, but in dental school, it's it's more normal. Okay. For older students to go in, okay, like that's not a it's not so unusual. Like in my med school, like I was 
yeah. unusual. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in medicine, there's a reason for that, which you maybe find out now. Is right. Because like, you have all that training Because I'm afterwards. old. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm old. I can't have children. I gave up my 30s. I didn't have, I didn't want children anyways. But like you, you give up yeah. a lot for yeah. medicine. Well, and you either and give up so your 30s. Dental school is like four years. Yeah. I yeah. give up my entire 30s. Or you give up your 20s total. if you are more traditional route like I was. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You're yeah. Sacrifice so. something for it. <laughs> but I love medical school. I just like I loved it. I, I yeah. had a great time in med school. Loved it. Did the dodgeball team. I was on the dodgeball team. I made lots of friends. Um, you had your I had a study group. Social life. I had my study. Group. It was fun. We went shopping after every finals. Oh, it was great. Yeah, Ingrid loves shoots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> something you'll learn about Ingrid. Yeah. Um, yeah. So med school was awesome. Yeah. Lots of good things. And then you yeah. go to UT Southwestern. How was that? How was intern year? Uh, so I think I think UT Southwestern is an amazing program. I think mine was tainted because of my personal issues. Yeah. Um, I think had I stuck it out, I would have been a really good urologist. Um, oh, yeah. And very grateful for the training. But it was intense. I mean, residency all the way around as you go into this phase, it just sucked for me, like all the way around. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard, um, on my body. It was hard on my mind. It was just hard. So it was just hard. So at this time, like when I matched, we talked about the urology match before this, my mother had like experienced like a lot of mental decline, unusual for such a young age. Like she would forget like in the middle of making a salad, what she was doing, or she would get lost in her own house. And she was only in her fifties at the time, which was again, it looks and sounds like dementia, but it's in mm-hmm. the wrong age bracket. Right. So she had gone to multiple neurologists who didn't know like what to do with her. Like they're like, this is unusual. And she had an MRI done, which showed like a lot of stroke like lesions around her ventricles. Mm-hmm. So it looked like she had suffered multiple strokes. She finally got referred to OHSU in Portland and a neurologist thought of a very, very rare diagnosis that's only diagnosed um, through like a special like DNA test. And he ordered it for her and it was positive. So I found out about this. We had during med school, we had been, you know, sending her different specialists, wondering what was wrong. Um, And when she got the diagnosis, it was five days after I had submitted my urology match. Mm. And, and for those of you who don't know, the match is binding. You can't change. Like once you submit at the deadline, you can't reverse it. You've got to go. Yeah. And so I found out five days after I'd submitted. And the reason why that was so impactful for me was um, this is a, she has catasol, which is um, cerebral autosomal dominant um, arteriopathy and subcortical infarcts and leukoencephalopathy. Basically, long story, it's a genetic or very rare, thank goodness, genetic form of dementia where smooth muscle begins to die like in someone's 40s and basically causes decreased oxygen to the brain. So you suffer multiple strokes. And most of them are subacute. Like the patient doesn't know that they're having strokes. And it's mm-hmm. acute, that damage to the brain accumulates over time. So that's when they begin to manifest different symptoms based on where the strokes have occurred. Mm-hmm. So their personality changes, depression, um, forgetfulness, aggressive behavior, psychosis, et cetera. And so that's what they had seen on MRI where all these strokes of, yeah. and, and damage to the white would matter. 
And for me, like, because there's only one, at that time, there's only one lab in the whole country that processed this diagnosis. I got the results because my parents are immigrants. They don't speak great English, especially medical English. So I got the results back. And basically, I learned by reading her results that she was homozygous, which means she has two copies of that defective gene for a autosomal dominant disorder, meaning you only need Mm -hmm. one gene to have the manifestation. Mm -hmm. So her neurologist called me and said, you know, you and your sister need to know that because she has two copies of this defective gene that is passed down to you. So you may want to refer for genetic counseling if you want to have children, and you need to be aware that you are at risk for developing the same thing that she has. And But it's a very odd disease because even if you have the gene, you don't know the penetrance, you don't know how it's going to manifest and to what extent and the severity. But that really like disturbed me basically and really impacted my intern year because as you know, like medicine stops for nobody mm-hmm. <laughs> to say yeah. the least. And um, I was, I didn't have time to process my mother's diagnosis and the implications for my right. life. And I was thrown into moving like halfway around the country and going straight into like a surgical residency at UT yeah. Southwestern. I started off in surgical oncology first day and it was like the day from hell, the worst day of my entire life that I never want to relive. Um, and you're, you have like lack of sleep. You're in the hospital for hours and hours under extreme stress. And I just wanted to like die, basically. I was extremely depressed. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was my intern year. I was, I was grappling whether like, what am I doing here? Like, why am I working so hard? And, and suffering so much if I'm going to lose any like motor skill or verbal skill that would affect me being able to be a surgeon. I'm, I'm, I'm dedicating all these hours so I can be a really good surgeon. But what if I only get like five to 15 years of practice because I was in my th- like approaching my late 30s by that time and my mother mm-hmm. started getting symptoms in her mid 50s. So by the time I finished training, Technically, I could start having symptoms. She started getting them in her late 40s mm-hmm. and manifesting significantly by her mid-50s. By the time I graduated from med school, she didn't know who I was. So um, I remember I was on I was a surgical intern on SICU, which is a surgical intensive unit. And at that time, you know, my mom was so sick and my father couldn't take care of her anymore. And I was in a physician at the time. I was on a resident salary. And my husband was just trying to make things meet and we couldn't afford to pay for long-term care mm-hmm. so uh they decided to move back to their native country where they immigrated from which is indonesia so i never saw my mom after graduation she yeah. moved um my dad moved her back and uh and that's where she uh, eventually passed recently so that was my intern year it was really really hard so they to say moved, the least. did they move your engineer is that when they moved back to they Indonesia? Did. okay they yeah. did they moved back um in september as I was studying for uh, step three and on um, surgical ICU. So, so, and that's where they've been. Yeah. And so, you know, you kind of get this news and I'm trying to get and understand where your headspace was. Cause it sounds like it just like immediately took all these plans and everything you'd worked mm-hmm. for. And you're like, I might not be able to do that. Were you at the time you were like, sure that cause looking at your mom and you're like, I'm not going to be able to do this. It's not, it's all going to be taken from me, all this hard work or, yeah. and then, so you decide, you decide what at that point that yeah. I need to do something that's, I'm going to be able to do for longer, or I don't want to work this hard to, you know, become a urologist or. Or I just don't want to do medicine. I, 
it was all that and it was all that I just couldn't I didn't have any time to process Uh and I just knew like I was at breaking point like you know honestly I was super depressed like where I was suicidal every day and trying and I felt like I performed well like if you didn't really know me you wouldn't know that I was going Mm -hmm. through any of the stuff that I was going through Uh, when I talked to my program director eventually when I finally made the decision to stop they were surprised I mean they didn't have any idea from what I knew uh, from what I know, but it was a process. I was just trying to survive. I was just trying to survive. And I just felt like life is short. Um, I don't know if this will happen to me. There's a big gamble and people still mm-hmm. tell me that to this day. And I, I find that like actually kind of rude, <laughs> but, um, they would say, Oh, well, you don't know if you're going to get it. So like, why are you worried about it? You could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Uh, that's true. But I knew like what kind of sacrifice I was making on my body and my mind to do what I was going to do. And I just felt like with this big unknown, like that's a that's a cloud that will hang over my head the entire time. And I didn't at that time know if I could deal with it. And I obviously chose not to deal with it and step away, Hmm. which was probably one of the hardest decisions I've ever made because I'm not a quitter. And I felt like a big failure and a big quitter. And I was depressed from that decision too. Mm -hmm. Um, But my program was like, I didn't decide until May, I think May of my intern year. And I talked to my program director who was very supportive. Everyone at my program was extremely supportive. Um, I still like, in a way, keep in contact with my old pro. Like I send him Christmas cards, he'll email me every once in a while. Um, But yeah, it was, it was a very difficult decision. And I had no backup plan. It was like, say, oh, I'm going to go do this. No, yeah. when no you stepped away, plan. it was just like, I, I know I can't do this. I can't. And that's all I can. That's all. That's probably yeah. all you had the bandwidth to process with yeah. everything else going on. Is like all I know is that this is not it. And, yeah. And, and if no my life, plan. I, I just knew like if if the worst case scenario, this is how I kind of thought about it. Best case scenario, nothing happens to me. Yay! Right. Worst case, worst case scenario, I end up like my mother or worse. Mm-hmm. And I will have sacrificed like a third of that time where I'm still yeah. mentally cognizant to train for a thing that I cannot do. Yeah. And um, at that point, that worst case scenario wasn't worth the cost. That's right. what that's the ultimate bottom line. That's yeah. how I made yeah. my decision. Yeah. So when you say step away, what do you mean? Like, did you take a leave of absence? Did you leave the program entirely? I left the program entirely. I, I knew that they needed to find a replacement. We're such a busy program. And so I, I wanted to tell them as soon as possible to increase their chances of getting a good applicant for them. Because I felt like a like an obligation. Right. Like I, I felt my program was great. I didn't want to screw them over. Um, and I wanted all my co-residents to be able to have the support that they, because they offered me different things. Like we could do this, we could give you a leave. And I was like, right. if I take a leave, my co-residents have to take a lot more call because I'm not there. I just couldn't do that to them. You know, mm-hmm. we were just so busy. And I'm like, you know what? I can't, uh, let me just take myself out of the equation. And they even like, my program can offer, like you can uh, come again, back again. Like you can apply for the, you know, they were very generous with me. And I said, mm-hmm. okay, fine, let me just, let me leave. So they found a really great replacement. I think he turned out really well from what I heard. Um, and yeah, so I just walked away. On uh, June, July 1, instead of going into my second year, I was on a plane back home to Southern California to visit my sister and my cousin, which was weird, but yeah. And so then how did I kind of know your story and what happens, but what happens now? You're back in Southern California. 
yeah you're kind of processing uh, everything yeah just not at work that's really the whole point is not at work and yeah. i have really good friends who i've been friends with forever very you know circumstantial but her their sister was getting married and they needed help decorating the tables <laughs> so i volunteered to help set up for the wedding and thus i got to go to the wedding and i met some people back at Loma Linda that knew of residency openings and they basically set me up with interviews for various specialties I interviewed or at least prepared applications for like psychiatry, family medicine. I actually really considered palliative medicine or palliative care. Um, but yeah, I looked at all the specialties again and then I heard about dermatology and never thought about dermatology, as you know, my disgust for skin at the time. And I, I kind of looked into it like, okay, it's procedural and I can do surgery. And yeah, so I was like, okay, maybe I'll apply for it. So I applied for that. And, and as fate would have it, I got accepted. So that's my very, and I would not advise anyone to do it that way. It's my very <laughs> And that was like a, um, the, the derm spot, because we've talked about this on the podcast before, was like a soap spot though, right? Were you applying for like unfilled spots? No. But didn't they like? I thought they had like not filled that spot. They didn't the fill that spot. Match because Correct. because we are now uh, one year because Derm's like a when you match you don't start for a year later uh, yes. type of thing. So you're on your time off sabbatical, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And all of the people, me and Mona, your two co-residents are in internship mm -hmm. at that time. Yes, um, correct. And that spot was not matched into the year before so you and i are kind of like mm -hmm. one year off from yes. finishing med you guys graduated a year later than i did yeah okay so that spot was not soaked into but an unfilled spot they were trying to find the it was right an unfilled spot yeah they were trying to find somebody and lo and behold i came and they took me which i am grateful for i will always be grateful and um so i spent that year working for loma linda um helping med students study better that was my position basically yeah, using your gills again. Yeah, until derm, until my spot, until you and Mona came on to be, you know, derm ones. Yeah, and then I joined you guys as as a derm, you know, first year resident. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then well, so what was the timeline there? Because you you mentioned you so you walked away, you left Texas in July, and yeah. you go back to Southern California. And how mm -hmm. long is it before you start applying to this new mm. new residency? Uh, I started applying like July of 2000. This was all 2015. I walked away June of 2015. I was in July. I already was in California visiting my sister. My husband was still in Texas. I just gone to visit. And that's when I found out about some of these residency spots. I started applying uh, July 2015. Um, I got accepted into dermatology. I believe it was late August or early September of 2015. And then I got my position working for the School of Medicine in that year until that transition until I would start Durham residency. I started doing that in October of 2015. And I flew back and forth between um, Texas and Loma Linda. Like after finals week, I would fly back to Loma Linda to meet with students and talk about their exams and what went well and didn't go so well. And then Otherwise, I'd be home in Texas preparing like educational materials or doing tutorials that we would do through Zoom. Oh, mm -hmm. nice. So you were kind mm -hmm. of vir virtual esque. Virtual, uh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So it kind of. And then we. 
Yeah. It seems like, you know, when you had left Texas, you were unsure if you even wanted to yeah. continue medicine. And that, Correct. that seemed to resolve very quickly then in like the span yeah. of a month. Or was it just like when you had that opportunity spring up, you're like, no, I can do this. Or what's Or what was it financial there? pressures? I feel like a lot of people in medicine uh, too have these like you know, big yeah. student loans that like other yeah. careers aren't able to really pay enough to help sure. pay them off. Yeah. I mean, I had like $210,000 of student loans. And so to say that's not a factor would, yeah. would be a lie. Um, but I did, that wasn't a priority. It was like, should I finish? And I just felt like I needed to finish what I started. Mm. Like I, I didn't want to come out and not have any, and I would have to thank my friends who real who are physicians already like you just need to finish something right. because otherwise your md is pretty much worthless yeah and um and i was like okay i'm gonna do it I, i've survived nothing can be worse than my surgical year not like that my i was just because of my mental state yeah. you know mm-hmm. like if i could have pushed through my intern year as bad as it was for me and still like come out okay um i can survive any residency um you know, other than the surgical specialties or whatnot. And so that was my mindset. And um, yeah, so I thought about walking away. I thought of, I did research other things that I could do and there were not many. Maybe things have changed now with, I didn't want to work for insurance companies. I didn't want to work urgent care. So it was just very limited. So I felt Mm. like I had to go back to medicine and I was trying to find the best fit. And I guess besides before Durham, my, my, most serious consideration was palliative medicine because of my experience yeah. with like kind of terminal um, family members or diagnoses. And I just felt like that's an overlooked area in medicine and that deserves a lot of dignity and help. And, um, but obviously I, I didn't choose that route. So, yeah. So I'm sure starting Derm, and I kind of know because we were co-released <laughs> together, it was like, a big role when you've got these like people who've oh been my dying gosh. to do this forever. <laughs> oh my gosh! It what was, was such that all a like for you? Culture shock. Yeah. It was so different. You know, in surgery, and I would say internal in the medicine, internal medicine specialties and their subspecialties, you learn on the job. You know, we don't spend hours poring over textbooks. It's like you learn through your cases, being there for hours on patients. Derm is a completely different beast. And it's like, we learn so much. In fact, a lot of people in medicine will poo-poo or make fun of germs because they think that we're all about, and this was my misconception too, like just like cosmetic stuff or like throw a lotion on it. But like derm residency is just, derm is very, very science-based, very immunologic, basic science, pathology, like basic science. And you spend a lot of time memorizing very obscure crap yeah that you yep. never <laughs> see in clinical practice like ever and that's hard yeah you're just memorizing and memorizing and memorizing and you spend like ten, nine hours in clinic basically as a scribe for somebody mm-hmm. and then you're going home and you're studying again for things that you never see so it's very different uh very different <laughs> It might have been well suited to you, though, as a uh, yeah. somebody who's kind of developed into a study specialist. Uh, yeah. To, and it was very familiar with having to sit down and really study hard and put in the long hours that this was something that uh, you knew you would be capable of. Yeah, that was my strong suit. I'm not, I was a, not a great, like, I'm not good at dermatologists. And I'm saying that honestly, I'm not a great, there's people who are far better dermatologists than I am. I'm not, like, super detailed. I don't think in differentials like in surgery it's like 
here are the symptoms. Okay, get the imaging confirmed. Where's the stone? We operate. We don't operate, right? It's like very yeah. fast decision-making. And Derm is not like that. It's like, they're like, well, what else could it be? I'm like, what do you mean what else it could be? It's this. <laughs> like biopsy confirmed. Why do I have to give you five differentials, you know? And like, and I'm not like a super visual. I did photography, but the way that Derm thinks... Yeah is very different than the way I think. And I just, I remember one of my attendings told me like, Ingrid, you are not a surgeon. Stop thinking of us like, you got to think like a dermatologist. And she like would say that several times to me. And it was hard because there's people like my co-residents who could think that way. And it was, I'm not, I was not a great clinical derm resident. It was difficult. <laughs> I could study, but yeah. in, in like action practicality, I, w- I was not great. So. Yeah. And derm's so interesting in that fact too, because there is like, there's the whole concept of it that's like, how good are you at studying and memorizing stuff? Because yeah. there's so many things like that you'll never see that you have to be able to pick out of a picture. Because a lot of our tests too, people might not know this, is sometimes they'll just throw a picture up and it's like, what is this? Yeah. Nothing. So very photo recall. And then like you said, yeah, basic science, which I'm very not detailed. the basic science person at all. Very detailed. Very detailed. <laughs> and then, I'm not detailed. It's yeah. like one of my worst traits. <laughs> um, it so is. You can ask my husband. Yeah. He's like, man, I'm, it's like detail in the pictures, detail in what protein weight. Yeah. Like, I just don't give a crap. Yeah. yeah. And you have to give a crap. Yeah. So, but then there's this I mean, whole I remember, other like, side that's like uh, being a good people person, too. Yeah. And like talk, and I don't think you really get into that too much until you're actually doing derm out of residency. Yeah. Um. But yeah, derm's a very you have to be like good at studying a pick a very much like a photo person, a photo recall, and then yeah, be a people person. So it's yeah. a, it's a weird field. Um, yeah. But there are other fellowships within it, like Mo's. I would say is less mm-hmm. of that. Like when you're describing, yeah. like oh, there's a stone. I mean, that's Mo's. Like there's the tumor. Cut it out. <laughs> Right, like yeah. okay, take it out. Um, so and I'm on the same page as you in that I prefer that type of thing too, like very black and white. Like, like I remember the some of our faculty, like Dr. Hirakani, who's like she'd give you a differential that was like you know, I know <laughs> ten I like, things long, and you're like, oh, what uh, else? And you're just like writing them down, and she's telling you the I, other I things know. that this could be, and you're like, huh, really? This uh, could be I- lupus? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was bad at Kodachroms. Like, I mean, I'm just like, I, I admit terrible at Kodachroms, which is bad for Derm. So it's like a whole skill set that you just have to like, it's it's a skill set. I'm, I'm never going to be the best, but if I can be like competent and recognize like basic stuff, like, and recognize and know when to biopsy, know when to refer out, that's mm-hmm. what I need to do. But I'm not like brilliant in that way. At, I, I missed strie, which is stretch marks on a Kodachrome. Okay, so that's how like bad I was at Kodachrome. Kodachrome. Like, I have no qualms telling you how sucky I was. <laughs> well, for the people listening who are not dermatologists, and even David might not know this, but uh, Kodachrome's is a very derm thing. I remember my first rotation where like, oh, you have a Kodachrome's lecture at whatever time. And you're like, okay, okay, yeah, I'll be there. And then you go and you're like, what is this? And Kodachrome's is basically like they put up a picture and you describe the lesion, give a differential. And then decide how, you know, how do you break down that differential? What is it actually? And how would you treat that? Um, but base, but all you get is a photo. Okay. So yeah. color crumbs is like, like a type of test. Versus- yes. Yeah. And you do it in front yeah. of everybody. Yes. And like, 
Durham is like, I'll say this as an outsider, it's a, like a bunch of really, really smart, like type A people that aren't used to being humiliated. Yes. So, and uh, perfectionistic. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a I remember coming in my first day and looking at everybody like, holy shit, everyone's skin is like on a magazine, but it's in real life. It's like they have walking filters. And I was like, she, she like, my program term, Pruner was going through like the orientation materials, and all I could do was just stare at her skin. Like, is that for effing real? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I would say we are not like the jokesters. Like, we are so probably coming from urology, this was really hard because most people in Derm are pretty freaking uptight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Me yeah. included. <laughs> yes. I'm no, the first like one to say urology, that. Yes. We would close the clinic doors and just laugh and laugh, like, about like, they would do pranks all the time and like Durham is like, so, so yeah, it, it was a very different um, like culture that I, it took me a while like to kind of get used to Like You just can't say what you want to say. You have to like be nice and very like filtered and have just like your skin, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so yeah. got all the filters on. I learned, I learned, I got through. If I graduated, all of y'all who were in Durham can graduate too. So um, you learn and um, Did- it was, did you find yeah. that Durham residency was just was similarly hard to urology or um, just like hard in like a different way? How was Durham resident? Like I was with you for Durham residency, but for the listeners, like how was Durham residency for you? I think there were still some struggles. Um, yeah. They were just very different than the ones that you very had different in struggle. urology. Yeah. So uh, I, for my personality, I like to study. So in, if you're talking about the actual residency, the residency itself, for me, it was a lot easier than urology. Mm. Like I could eat breakfast, I could use a restroom, I could exercise. I had control, even though I had to study a lot, you have control. Where in surgery, you have no control of your schedule, right? So I got a lot more sleep than I was used to. Um, if you don't like to study, it is horrible. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's because you study so much. Um, so in that point, I felt like Durham was a lot easier. What made Durham really difficult for me was you know, we talk, alluded to this, like, residency and medical training never stops. It doesn't care if someone passed away. Mm-hmm. It doesn't care if you are suicidal. It doesn't care if you're in the middle of a divorce. It just doesn't care. And I was going through, like, a lot of personal stuff. Like, I felt a lot of betrayal by people, institutions that I held very dear. And based and, and that piggybacking on my interner that I really never recovered from, I never got yeah. treated for my mm-hmm. depression because in medicine, it's an effing black hole. Like no one wants to admit it. It's a big taboo subject. So we just like, we can do it because we're strong and we, we can do everything in medicine. So we pummel through yeah. and that's exactly what I did. You just cope with it. You're a high functioning person for the most part and you just go through until one day I realized like I couldn't, I had nothing left and I broke. I just broke for personal reasons that I won't go into, but, mm-hmm. and I had nothing left. I couldn't go on and I just, I broke and I had to go to the psychiatrist, the head psychiatrist at our institution. And she told me like, she had a, I don't, I don't need help. I, I, I have to, I'm the consult resident. I got to like take call things like that. She said, you need help. And she told me, if you don't get help, sounds like you've been through a lot. Mm -hmm. If you don't get help now, you think it's going to be easier when you're done with training, you will never have this time. This is like protected time legally. You need to do this for yourself. 
And that really like struck a chord with me. And she's like, you've already like changed careers to sacrifice for your health and your mental health. Like, why not actually become a better whole person than just someone who's kind of like bandaged together? And so I, I did, I, I decided to take a break from Durham residency. I went to like therapy, like outpatient therapy for a month to treat my depression and my suicidal ideation. Um, I told, it was embarrassing as hell. It was really embarrassing. Probably one of the most embarrassing things I've ever done, but I made a promise to myself that if I got through it and I got better, that I would be very forthcoming with it because it's not talked about in medicine. Mm-hmm. It's probably not talked about in Durham because we're probably high functioning people but we're human and life happens and we cannot always hold our shit together. And I just made a promise that I would try to normalize it as much as possible. So, um, so yeah, I went and got treated. It changed my life. If I didn't, if I didn't get put on medication, like it was the psychiatrist told me like you'd have two weeks that you'd feel pretty shitty. And then all of a sudden like you'll get better. Like you'll be manageable. And I didn't believe her. You know, I did. I remember learning about depression as a second year student, like, wow, my mental illness, whatever, right? But it was like, I wanted to die, I wanted to die, I wanted to die. And then like week two after taking the medication, like I was able to handle it. It wasn't great, but I I wasn't like in that depth. It just like took me back to a place where I could process and and function. And it it did it cloud my mind? Yeah. Did it make me loopy a little bit? Yeah. Um, but I got better. I was able to return to Durham residency. I was like, you know, I was on Prozac. I think I was on 40. It made me forgetful. And I remember <laughs> it made me forgetful. And did it impact my training? Yeah, because I couldn't remember things as well. I remember an attending pulled me aside. And this will always stick to me to this day. They pulled me aside and they said, you know what? Because I was making mistakes in my charting because I was little, you know, loopy and they said you know what you could actually be a really good doctor if you tried and i i said i understand like i'm sorry i let you down like i'm on medication and i can't like control it at this time i'm trying to back off as soon as possible uh i'll try better um but they just like basically they don't yell in Durham. they just no. like kind of scold you um and that always stuck to me like i yeah, because you're there trying as hard as you possibly can you're given everything to try yeah yeah yeah. And you're like trying but to make I, yourself a better, you're taking these meds to be a better person, to be a better yeah. doctor. Yeah. And yeah. But, wow. you know, but everything that comes before that you've gone through helps you get through all the weird stuff, right? So mm. I remember telling myself, I've gone through worse. Yeah. Like even no matter how bad this is, I've gone through like failing my MCAT and getting it. I've gone through my intern year, which was physically and mentally extremely brutal. And I, I don't know many people that could probably have done it. You know, like it was rough. And I can do this. Like, so someone doesn't like me. Someone doesn't think I'm a good doctor. Does that make that true? It might be true at this time, but I, I don't have to make that a truth for me. Mm-hmm. But that always like spurred me to so I cut back on my dose. I doubled down on my, you know, stuff. And I, you know, I got through. So just like, you know, to be sensitive to, uh, you don't know what's going on mm-hmm. in people at any time. And just to be kind, I guess you could say was, I, I don't know. And maybe be more inquisitive too. Like, I mean, you were always kind of over, you know, achieving and doing well and studying and kind of knew your shit, at least from my perspective. And so I would think that somebody should say like, oh, what's up? You know, instead of like, you know, how, how, yeah. why is this bad? And it's because yeah. you don't know, like, you know, you don't know on? more of like, but a- you know what, like going through what you go through, like you are more, at least I can say like, I am very attuned to it. Like yeah. in my patients. Yeah. 
I can sense it and I will huh. push them. Mm-hmm. And I have gotten some like very, like in a 15 minute appointment, we can go really deep, really yeah. fast. Because yeah. do I share with patients? Like, and I say, I'm, I sense that you're not like doing well. I'm like, I know I've gone through it. And I tell them like, I've gone through it. And I know I would not be here today if I had not got help. And they open up. Like I've heard mm-hmm. about extremely difficult situations. Um, I've had a patient come back to me like a year later. So you don't remember me, but you talked to me last time about my depression. And I decided to follow your advice and go get medication. And my life is so much different today. Mm-hmm. So wow. any like hardship that you go through, like, yes, we have that pain that you feel you can, you're much more like in tune when other people are feeling it. And I, you, I go there. Yeah. I go there in a basic yeah. skin check. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, Which is life incredible sucks. Like, Derm is kind of notorious for spending the least amount of time with our patients, you know, and like, we're almost the opposite of psychiatry who has tons of time yeah so the fact that you can kind of reach people even in the small time you have yeah in like that quick because little visit in a very weird way i think it's like my surgeon personality i just cut through the bullshit i don't like these filters like the the the, the, the that's kind of like in derm like i'm just a very like let's get down to it and i feel like for some patients who are suffering like i'm probably abrasive to a lot of patients but patients find you right like you don't have to it's be true. everything to everybody yeah. If they don't like you, like they don't, I don't get the best reviews all the time. Like people who want to talk about like stupid stuff, like I'm kind of rushed with them and they give me a bad review. And honestly, I don't care. Yeah. You know, like I'm there for the patients that I meant to be there yeah, for yeah. Who, are, who I feel are really suffering and they appreciate it. And that's really all that matters. Like in, in, in dermatology, like in medical school, it's our grades that matter, yeah. right? In dermatology, it's our reviews. Now it's like you're there for your patients. Like I mm-hmm. do not care about my press gainy. I do not care about my internal reviews. Like as long as when I drive home that day, I can look myself and like when I enter, like I did the best I could for my patients that really needed me. That's all I can. That's all that matters. Yeah. And if I feel like I've wronged a patient, which I have, like I was rushed, I call them back the next and I apologize for being rude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. So. Lindsay, kind of in an effort to further yes. talk about it like you struggled a lot during your residency as well like, yeah do you want to talk about that at all like what how you felt you struggled or what that was like for you I mean I think dermatology residency was really hard for me um and I think I've talked maybe talked about this a little bit in some of other I mean and like I in no comparison to to Ingrid's experience but for me it was hard moving to a place that was pretty kind of exclusive. I think the, the mm-hmm. Loma Linda community is, mm-hmm. I'm not Adventist. Um, I was an outsider, felt like an outsider. I've never really felt like an outsider in my life before. Um, during all of my training and in med school, I was always quick to find friends and um, have study partners and stuff like that. So I moved to this new city thinking like, oh, it'll be the same. I'll find people, I'll meet people, make friends. Didn't really, you know, you have your co-residents, but you're also all working and studying and and I, Ingrid, mentioned this. Derm is like very study heavy. I hate studying. I hate <laughs> it. I am very much like, like I would rather spend, so like Moe's Fellowship for me was great because I'm like, I will be in Moe's Fellowship. I will work for 12 hours a day if I like what I'm doing. And I would rather do that than sit at home and study. So Derm was very hard for me. And I would, had become a group studier in med school. And now I don't have, you know, friends you know, Mona and Ingrid weren't really group studiers. And so 
I didn't have anybody, and neither were our other co-residents. They all kind of were independent studiers. So I had nobody to study with. And um, I felt like I wasn't performing very well because dermatology is a lot of test taking. They You have like <laughs> these um, ITEs in training exams and you take them and get a score. And that is how they compare you against all the other derm residents in the country. And you take that every year. And, and I went into derm knowing that I wanted to do Mohs. I wasn't like super excited about general dermatology. Like finger <laughs> alludes to like the, the multiple diagnoses and all of this stuff. I was like, not about that. Um, and so I had to get through doing three years of something that I didn't, I wasn't super stoked on. And, you know, I think I just had some like subclinical depression probably from, uh, well, probably started in derm residency and just kind of, you know, like, like you said, like medicine stops for nobody. Nobody really cares. They're like, oh, you're showing up, you're seeing the patients, you're doing your job. That's all. Um, and then all three of us, I think, kind of in our residency went through some struggles uh, yeah. in derm residency. And so then that puts a strain on the system, too. Um, and I just think that it was just a really a really hard time. And it, um, a lot of people are like, oh, residency was the best. I would go back and do residency again. And I loved my intern year. My intern year was that for me. Yeah, you had a lot like, of fun. Yeah, I loved my intern year. <laughs> so I can, like, understand what those people mean. But for me, for derm residency, it was that I would, you would have to pay me lots and lots and lots and lots and lots, <laughs> and lots and lots of money for me to ever do derm residency again. Mo's fellowship, great. Loved it. Amazing. So it was bad. I had two very good like training for me resident. Um pretty hard and pretty brutal. Yeah. And um yeah, it was it, it wasn't easy. Pretty unhappy during that time. Yeah, I was. I was just kinda chugging along, you know? And and the hard thing about that too is you know, I was like mid twenties, mid to late twenties, like and you know, now being with you, You're somebody, supposed to be having fun, right? Now that I'm with somebody who didn't go into medicine, and during that time, David was like scuba diving and traveling the world, and like you know, doing all these things. But I'm like, God, I didn't do any of that, and I was like depressed. And you know, I I love where I'm at now. Like it was all worth it in the end, right? Like I love my job, I love my patients, I like what I do, I like who I work with, all of those things. But um. It was, it was a hard three. It was only three years. And medicine gets you in this mindset. You kind of alluded to this too, Ingrid. It's like, I could do anything for a year. I could do anything. And you kind of take it piece, piecewise because our rotations were like three months, I think. Yeah. So it's like, I can do anything for three months. I can do it for three months. And then you get to the next rotation. <laughs> I can do anything for three months. Mm. And you just basically <laughs> do that. And that's kind of starts in med school because, you know, you might hate yeah. a rotation and you're like, I remember in med school being like, I can do anything for four weeks. You know, like if I didn't really like, you know, I didn't like neurology. I remember I hated that rotation. So like I can, but I, this is two weeks. I can do anything for weeks, you know? So that's just how your life kind of. It's a lot of delayed gratification and just pushing through. Yeah. And hopefully you find something. I think it's so hard to find something you're really going to enjoy because there's so many things that you don't get uh, exposure to. Like I never did urology. I have no idea what that was like or what those people were like. I never rotated on it. And so there's so many parts of medicine that you might never see. I didn't even know what PM&R was uh, until I was in and I had <laughs> PM&R residents with me. And I'm like, wait, what specialty? I didn't even know that was a thing. So Plenty of just, money and rest. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, so there's so much that it's just you're not exposed to. And it's so crazy to think because you spend four years doing it, right? Like how so much that you still don't know. But yeah. I've spent yeah. four years studying medicine. How is there a specialty I've never heard of? Yeah. Right? <laughs> I could have chosen yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> I know. 
Well, and even interventional radiology, I remember loving that. My intern, I could really do this. Um, but I just had never had exposure to it until I was already. And at that point, you're kind of already locked in. So, yeah, it's like you have to pick a partner fast. Yeah. And it might be premature and you're in a marriage that you can't get out of. Yeah. That's a very good analogy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like a it's like an arranged marriage, except you arrange yeah. it. <laughs> you have you some, you it have prematurely. some stay. Yeah. You have some say in your arrangement, but not full stay. Yeah. What uh so what happens after residency here? You do you are you going to enter the workforce? Do you want to go do something else? Or where are um, you feeling? Yeah. That? I just wanted to be done. I was yeah. done with training. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I'm at this point, oh, coming out, like as I was going to my fourth year, I just wanted to get a job, pay down my loans and really just start living my life. Just mm-hmm. as Lindsay alluded to, you don't have a life for 10 years Yeah. where people are telling you when to come in, when to go, what to do. And now you have a choice of where I want to go, what my schedule wants to, is going to be like. And that's really all I wanted. You know, I, I, I don't have the identity of like being a physician. I never really wanted to be a physician. I love aspects of it and it's what I do, but um, it's not my identity. So I didn't feel the need to go into further training. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to be done, pay off my loans. And to me, that was like freedom. Yeah. Once I paid off my loans, I would work because I wanted to. And so I did. I found this job. I started looking my at the end of my third year and I interviewed at private practice, multi-specialty, HMO, academic, just to get the the, the gamut. Uh-huh. And, you know, things happen. I tried to go to private practice. It didn't work out through some misunderstanding, which is fine. It wasn't meant to be. So I ended up where I'm at. Um, overall, I like it. Um, I think it took, it's still taking me time to recover from medicine, you know, trying to mm-hmm. in, figure out like who you are oh, after yeah. all those years. Yeah. What you like. Yeah, this is um, something we've definitely talked about several times. It's like, okay, now you've got now you've got the time and you know, to a degree the money and it's like, okay, who do I get to be now? Like now that I'm not studying, like what do I develop into? What how do I find a hobby? Like what is a hobby? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's hard. It is crazy. It's this is something for I everybody. don't think people talk about. And I don't even think we've talked about this on the podcast yet either, but there is this like like you're right. Like we put off the last 10 years of our life. I didn't do those things in my 20s that people did. And like I I'm dealing with this right now and you might be dealing with it a bit too Ingrid of like who am I? Like what do I what am I aside from a Mohs surgeon, you know? Like what what am I outside of my work? Yeah. That that's exactly right. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. Um I I I definitely know that at this point I have no more ambition. Mhm. I, I'm just tired. I and just want to, yeah. to be. I have no plans of doing this or, you know, even like I, I wanted to go into academia and I may eventually once I get some momentum back, but I, I just don't, I just want to be, I want to work my, I work 7.15 to 4.30 every single day. I come home, I do four days a week and I pet my cats, my exercise. I mean, it's a very simple and boring life. But I, at this point, I like it. I don't need, I travel when I can, I mean, not during COVID until more recently, I've been able to do that, but that's, that's okay. I just, I want simple. Yeah. And I, for the first time in my life, I'm not doing like five things at one time, yeah. which is weird. Yeah. Yeah. And I paid off my loans. There you go. So, oh, yeah. I'm free. Yay. I live like a resident for like two. I, well, we still kind of do live like residents. My husband and I, we paid off his loans too. So. Half a million dollars is done, paid for, Crazy. and now we're just like you're free. Trying to take it in, we're yeah. free. 
Yeah. So, so what do you what do you guys like to do? It's not easy. Mentioned some travel. I love to travel. Ingrid's like COVID the travel queen. Hard. Oh my gosh! I love to travel. I love to plan itineraries and just wander. Oh my not gosh. do Can the super touristy thing, but just. <laughs> Oh, Lindsay, Lindsay and I, I think we work really well because we are spread. She is a spreadsheet queen. I'm just like a little like Padawan. Okay. So I do these travel like spreadsheets and I like look at all these forms, all this research, put it together. And then like, man, yeah. Yeah. I love, I, I love, I love to, travel. to travel too, but there is not an ounce of me that is willing to plan it. So it's like, oh. it's hard, you know, to, cause you know, if we somebody, should hire you. If somebody will like figure out all the stuff, like I will love it and everything like that. But I cannot like we were talking about going a place the other day and it's a little ways off, but I haven't even looked up the place. I can't summon up the energy to like look at this beautiful place we want to go and figure out what we would do while we were there or even where in the world it is. <laughs> oh no, yeah, that's like the funnest part. Because it allows you to like enjoy it. I remember like traveling, we did Patagonia and we did two weeks. I think we had like seven flights, like three bus rides, a train, like all these things that had to line up mm -hmm. and all on spreadsheets, Ugh. confirmation numbers, like this giant puzzle. And it all worked out. We got to I where we're going to go. I think I could like this. Yeah. I feel yes, like. you could like yeah, it, Lindsay. I, I know you could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, think I, I love could. this idea. She's like spreadsheet like <laughs> Obi-Wan yeah. Kenobi. Yeah. I just want somebody to tell me where and when we're going. Okay. <laughs> See, then you guys make a good pairing. Yeah. You can have the idea, and then she and her like little. I remember her, her and her spreadsheet. spreadsheet. Yeah. 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 I, I still yeah. budget. You know, whatever. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I like to travel. I like to eat. Those are my big things. I like my cat. I like friends. Yeah. I never thought simple. Ingrid was going to be the cat person. But I love it. I am I've loved watching so Ingrid become a cat woman. You are a cat woman now. I know, I know. I, I'm so a dog person, and I'm just like, never like, wow, cats. But hey, now I got two. <laughs> so you've recently uh, gone on kind of a mission trip, right? Yes, yes, yes. It was uh, to Romania. Um, I went in early June. I went with like um, a religious group that funded, and they didn't fund it, but they organized like a de free dental clinic and a free medical clinic. And they, so I, volunteered to go for a week and um asked different organizations to help donate medications and uh so i went there uh to specifically serve the ukrainian refugees mm -hmm. in romania and uh, we were in bucharest and it was it was really it was good it was sad of course it was good it was all those mixed things that you would imagine i mean mm -hmm. i just like the the strength of the people are, is really inspiring and humbling and just hearing their stories firsthand seeing their pictures seeing their pets they left behind mm -hmm. uh you know and all their like inflammatory disorders are raging oh, because yeah. they're stressed so yeah. eczema psoriasis rosacea out of control Luckily, we brought like 3,000 pills of minocycline and tons of clobetazole. I think we brought like 130 pounds of clobetazole. Oh, wow. So, uh, which is a steroid. Anyway, so it was, it was really good. Um, it was kind of like, I felt like full circle because that's what kind of got me into medicine. Yeah. yeah like, and then now being done. And... Yeah. So what? And it was weird. It was weird. Like, there's a bunch of like pre-med and, and nursing students and asking me about medicine. I'm like. Oh my gosh, I'm like, I'm, it still hits me that I'm done. Like, yeah. I'm done with training. <laughs> yeah. 
you're like it now. You're the person that, that they're so asking bizarre. advice from. Well, that was something Lindsay and I discussed the other day. And she's like, oh, I just passed that off. And it's like, you're the attending now. I know. You I, have to make the decision. I had like a tough patient last week. And I was like, man, it's like back to ethics class type of thing. You know, this is something where you'd like come out of the room as a resident and be like, what do I do? Uh, <laughs> there's no guideline for it, right? There's not a, it was one of those things. There's not a right or wrong answer, really. You know, all you can do is try and do what's best for the patient. And um, but uh, I remember telling David, like, it was one of those times like, I wish I could have like talked to my attending about it. And I haven't felt that way about something in a long time, actually. So but yeah, now I'm it. I'm it. I am the decision. <laughs> Everyone's looking to me and like, it what do we do you, in this right? situation? Yeah. Yeah. So it hits me at weird times too, like just randomly, like, oh my gosh, I decide. Like, it's weird that all these people put, you know, I see like 30 patients a day, like they put their faith in you, like to make the right decision. Yeah. And it's scary. Yeah. And I think that first year out of practice or out of training is really hard and maybe even harder as dermatologists, because like you alluded to a lot of our training, we're kind of scribing and in the room and helping, like we go in first and trying to figure out what's going on, but there's not as much ownership of the patients as I think there are is in other specialties. And so I think Yeah, we didn't even have continuity clinic Lindsay, yeah. in our in our program. Yeah. And so I think the first year out is really hard too. And I continued, you know, I struggled a little bit and I had similar struggles um my first year out of my fellowship. So just like, oh, like I am it now. That's it. Yeah. And to go present my patient. <laughs> <laughs> And make sure they're doing the right thing. Yeah. yeah. And that kind of comes back to like, you know, the remote thing. So I just want to touch on like, what was Bucharest like? Were you working in a clinic, in a tent or? There was both. They okay. gave me the clinic. So they gave me medicine, the clinic and, and dentistry was in the clinic. And they did all the other like prev med, preventative medicine lectures and stuff outside in the mm. tents. And there's no, it's great. There's no documentation and you have all the oh. meds. You're not doing prior auth and fighting insurance for basic clobetazole. It was lovely. You could just like talk to patients and treat them. Was this and then like... we got to go. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. So they would come to us because they advertise and they would okay. come to us. And then one of the day, two, I think two of the days we could go to where they were staying and they were staying mm -hmm. like in, I was expecting like tents and stuff, but it was not that way. They were like in dormitories. And they were like fed three meals a day. And I was just really impressed with, um, you know, the Romanian people. I think it's the same way in Poland from what I've heard. They've been very welcoming. Um, and it just, you, you don't always, the news doesn't always highlight the good in people. And it's mm -hmm. been very depressing lately, especially from, you know, for me, it's been really bad to see and hear a lot of these things in our political climate and, and things like that. But it was good to see good. Yeah. People welcoming other people, taking care of them and feeding them meals. And, you know, they gave them basic health care. It's not great. They didn't get to see specialists that much. You know, you saw some sad cases. But I think overall for a nation welcoming those in need, yeah. they're doing a fantastic job. And I mean, I think that's what we're ultimately here for is to help one another out. Mm -hmm. And it's not our country today, but it might be tomorrow. And it, for us, like, in, you know, I've, I've struggled with talking with patients, too, who feel bad about what's going on in the world and, and, and their feelings of our feelings of being like not useful here. But really, like you just have your sphere. And, and if you were meant to be in Ukraine or in Afghanistan or other places like you would have been born there, the universe or God, whoever you believe it would have dictated that. Right. But you were put here for the specific reason. And all you can do is help 
and bless people that come into contact with you today. And that's all mm-hmm. you can do. Mm-hmm. And they and the people that you touch, their responsibility is to impact their sphere, like with not the hatred and the racism mm-hmm. and the bigotry that's happening. That's very rampant in America today, which is really distressing to me. But like, that's all we can do. We can't solve all of America or the world crisis. Right. But we can just do, I'm in Woodland. Yeah. You're at wherever you are, you know? So yeah. I think that's spot on where it's like you get a lot of people, you see it, they get so focused on the news mm-hmm. and everything like that. And it's like, if you, if you turn off the news and you just kind of focus on your world around you that you actually see and touch and do everything like that, one, things aren't so bad. And two, it's something you can do something about. Like, so, you know, if you want to enact positive change, you know, turn off the news and just be good to somebody or, you know, help yeah. somebody out. And, you know, you, you can't control what's happening worldwide or America-wide. You can only affect your little part of it and hope that it spreads. Right. Because I'm sure, like, all of us, you, David, and you, Lindsay, like, you're where you're at because someone had some positive influence on you at some point in your life to turn you this way versus that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the little things, yeah. it's not always like yeah. the big things, it's the little things that they, that person probably didn't even think that they would have had any impact on you, Yeah, but they did. So maybe and even, maybe, yeah, took a moment to yeah. talk to you when they didn't need to. Yes. Or, you know, yes. Like somebody who convinced you that, hey, you need to take a break and, you know, this is the perfect, this is the right time in your life to do it. You need to, you know, stop now or right. you need to push through on this thing or whatever. And, and like to, your little And talks. to pay it forward. Yeah. yeah. And, and to like, you know. I'm only here today because, you know, people help me out. Like Lindsay, my co-resident Mona, um, the junior residents underneath me, like they help me take care of myself. They help take my call. Like I will always be indebted to them because life is like a team effort, you know, and we can sit there and we can tally things or we can be like, oh, but like, you don't know when you're going to be that person Mm -hmm. to like need to depend on other people. And I think for a lot of us, we don't like to take help. But sometimes we have to. And when we, at least for me, like when I struggle, like, how come I have to do this? Blah, blah, blah. I like, well, you know, people help me. And I would not be here if Mm -hmm. like people didn't go and put the extra effort in and take on extra work so that I can be here today. So I just need to shut up and be grateful for the opportunity to help and pay it forward. Yeah. And that's all we can do. Right. So um, I will always like be indebted to that. And I think that's something that we can take with us wherever we go is like, who can I help? Even though I'm feeling this way or that way, that doesn't mean that deters my actions. I can still decide to be helpful. And I think you're going about it a really nice way, too, because it's like, okay, you know, your co-residents and everything like that, they'll never get that time back. But you being willing to openly talk about, you know, your struggles and destigmatize it a little bit and everything like that, that's a really good way to pay it forward and, you know, repay, you know, their help and, you know, everything involved in that because it's like okay i i can't give you anything for that time where you helped me out but i can make it better for a little bit better for everyone else Mm -hmm. or i can try at least i mean we've all i think most physicians and most people like have had especially now in this day and age suffer from some type of either subclinical or just raging depression (laughs) it's just like it's just it's just the reality that we live in so and unfortunately I think medicine is very um, vulnerable because it's a system that doesn't breed uh, tolerance to it with the time and just, it's just not in our personality. So 
But it's so important. Medicine creates its own little PTSD, like has its own ability in and of itself without other things that go on in life to create depression and sadness because of the things we deal with day in and day out with patient things like that. Luckily in Durham, most Mm -hmm. of our patients are fairly healthy, but um, you know, we still see bad things and death more than other traditional careers. Um, So I think it's important and I'm so grateful for you for coming on and kind of opening up and telling us your story, telling the world your story, because I think (laughs) it could be really helpful for people. And I think like I started going to therapy and residency too when I was uh, um, kind of realized like, oh, like, you know, I just need to talk to somebody or at least try and get help. And I think destigmatizing therapy even just like mm-hmm. you don't have to be you don't even have to be subclinically depressed to get therapy therapy is great it will make you a better person you don't have to be anything have but i think everyone has a little touch of depression or a little touch of anxiety or a little touch of something that they could work on and grow as a person and i think medicine's yeah. so hard because you're so young like you were lucky to have been in medical school you know in your 30s these people that are in medical school in our 20s like what do we know about the world? Like, you know, and right. then you get put in this like mill of like study, study, study. The world does not stop for you. Da, da, da. And so I think just encouraging those people to have an outlet. Um, I don't think medicine's going to change, but I think we can make therapy and, uh, you know, mental illness more less debilitized or um, stigmatized and um, people can get help. And I think that will yeah. make, make us better doctors too. Yeah. It will. Because it doesn't change things. It just helps change how you process things and how you handle things. Like, is my diagnosis changed? No. My mom passed away in November, but I can, I develop tools to deal with it. And when Mm -hmm. I have like bad thoughts, I learned in therapy how to deal with those bad thoughts in a more positive way before you spiral down. So it doesn't change life. It just helps how you navigate and deal with life. And why don't we want this for more people, for our teachers, for our doctors for all the people we interact with i think it would be helpful for us all to to be more yeah, open sure. to it so well with that being said i think this is probably a good place to yeah. wrap up thank you so thank much you for having me Greg. yeah this is a great show yeah <laughs> okay goodbye everyone goodbye bye-bye